You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to Domecast. I'm Jordan Schrader of the News and Observer, hosting this week. And with me are Lauren Horsch and Colin Campbell of the North Carolina Insider and Will Doran of the NNO. Uh, this week we had a – we're coming to you on Tuesday, so it's actually last week. We had um, the start of a new session in which uh, nothing much so far has been accomplished, but in which legislators have talked about uh, environmental pollution and uh, Roy Cooper's appointees. And uh, the big news last week, uh, we had a ruling on redistricting. Uh, yet another uh, set of maps struck down. Um, so let's start with that. Colin, uh, what – did the ruling say, and uh, how is this different from all the prior times that all that these maps have been struck down? Yeah, so this was a different one because and it was one that kind of came as a surprise to a lot of us. Uh, we were sitting around the uh, legislative press room, uh, Lauren and I, and uh, this thing comes in saying that there's uh, congressional districts being struck down and as unconstitutional. Like, wait a minute, didn't didn't that happen a couple of years ago? And they redrew, and now we have different lines. And, and this is a different case, uh, which we were slowly managing to figure out with the help of about five different legislative aides who came in also confused about what was going on. Um, This is uh, a case that involves uh, partisan gerrymandering, which is something uh, that hasn't been an issue before. The previous uh, cases where North Carolina's districts have been struck down has been over racial gerrymandering, the idea that you pack people of a certain race, typically African-Americans, heavily into some districts to sort of dilute their voting influence in other places uh, and elect more Republicans is generally the the outcome of that. Um, And in order to sort of avoid accusations of racial gerrymandering, uh, when uh, Republicans redrew the congressional maps back in early 2016, uh, they were very careful to say, hey, look, we're not taking race into account on this. This is not the, you know, the way we're going about this. This is partisan gerrymandering. We would like to have a congressional delegation that includes 10 Republicans and three Democrats. And the only reason we've decided that is because we can't figure out a way to do it with 11 Republicans and two Democrats. Um, and they literally said that. They said that. Yeah, yeah. This is David Lewis, who is the uh, House um, Elections and Redistricting uh, Chairman, in a public meeting sort of explaining the process. And he said, and he actually uh, has on, been on Twitter in the last week or so sort of explaining that the reason he said that was to try to uh, satisfy the court that was concerned about racial gerrymandering to show that this was a different set of criteria. Um, and up until now, partisan gerrymandering has been okay. The uh, various courts that have taken up the issue uh, have said, you know, this is not unconstitutional to go about it this way, to, to draw these lines uh, with gains for your political party in mind. Uh, so this was sort of a unexpected ruling in some senses uh, came from the uh, U.S. District Court, Middle District of North Carolina, which is the same court that has dealt with a lot of the other uh, redistricting cases here, uh, saying that uh, partisan gerrymandering as done here in North Carolina for these congressional districts is indeed unconstitutional. And the order was that within a couple of weeks, uh, the legislature needed to redraw the lines. At the same time, the court will be appointing a special master to create a, a uh, alternative plan, and the court will guess decide between uh, the legislature's plan and the special master's plan. Uh, of course, the uh, legislature has uh, very quickly uh, come out in opposition to this ruling. They are not in any way happy with it, as you could expect, um, and are seeking a stay 
so that they don't have to go up against this fairly tight deadline to redraw maps and throw some confusion into uh, this coming year's election. They'd like to see uh, the current maps stay in place, at least for this year, pending uh, the outcome of an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, which, of course, is dealing with its own uh, redistricting parties and gerrymandering case out of Wisconsin. Uh, I think they've already heard oral arguments on that, and it's just a matter of uh, awaiting the ruling. Uh, so as of today, Tuesday, as we record it, the uh, federal court here in North Carolina has rejected the state request at that level. They say uh, legislators need to get on that redrawing process and uh, stick to the deadline they set last week, um, which was I think largely expected ruling from them since they were already the ones uh, saying that this had to happen. Um, so there's a stay request in with the Supreme Court right now. And so in the next couple days, uh, we should hear from them uh, whether they're going to put this lower court ruling on hold pending their review either of this case or at least of a um, ruling in the Wisconsin case, uh, or whether the Supreme Court is going to say, y'all need to go ahead with the uh, redraw by the end of the month, um, which will probably force a special session, I would think, or at least the them coming back in the current special session that so far has not merited much action at all, but is technically ongoing. Okay. And so um, if the Supreme Court gets back to them, they have to draw these by, and, and denies the stay, they have to draw these maps by January 29th, and then candidate filing opens up February 12th. So there's a pretty short window here. Yeah. So this could make it pretty hard for people to figure out where they're running Granted, we should note with congressional races, unlike legislative races, you don't necessarily have to live in your district. So I would imagine a lot of the incumbent members of Congress, if they somehow were to get drawn out of their district, they might decide to still run uh, and then move later or just, you know, serve an area that's a few counties away. Um, most of them have uh, challengers at this point, at least most of the, the Republicans do. Um, sort of unclear if those people might change which district they're running in or uh, not run at all, or if or perhaps other challengers might come forward. Um, you'd almost have to expect that if things got redrawn in a way that some of the Republican-held districts got more competitive, which seems uh, like a likely possibility if we've said partisan gerrymandering is not something that you can legally do, um, you might see the Democrats put forward better-known candidates. Um, most of the candidates they have uh, right now in a lot of these districts are not people you would have heard of outside of this campaign cycle because they are sort of uh, long-shot uh candidates to win because their district is so heavily Republican and there's a fairly well-entrenched incumbent like a Robert Pittenger or Mark Meadows that's uh, expected to have the advantage in the, in the current maps. Okay. Um, and these maps already have been used for one election. So, yeah, so these um, were used in 2016. If you were jump back to 2016, the um, court ruling there kind of came at the last minute. So we were actually well into the election process in the original maps drawn back in 2011. Um, and the ballots had been printed for the March primary. Um, and so everyone went in and they voted for member of Congress, knowing that those election results were never going to be released to the public and were never going to count because we were coming back to the polls in June for a special congressional primary in the new districts. And that was the lines uh, in the contest that were uh, used in November. So uh, we, we still don't know how, say, uh, Renee Elmer's fared in her old district's primary back that year because things got thrown out at the last minute and uh, became kind of a mess. And it seems like we could be headed towards a similar situation, depending on how all this shakes out. Yeah, it's possible that they could delay the primary, I, I suppose, uh, if they uh, if the, we run into candidate filing. And, yeah, and uh, I don't know for sure if it was the legislature could sort of unilaterally say, 
we'd like to move the uh, primaries back a few months or if the courts would need to do that or the courts would do that automatically. But yeah, I mean, February is the filing period and uh, we're getting really close to that. So I think the odds that these things get settled unless the courts simply say, we're putting this on hold for this year and whatever comes out of this uh, lawsuit is going to impact the 2020 elections for Congress. Um, I think that's the only way you avoid some kind of uh, deadline changes and uh, possibly moving of the primary. And people have been pointing out that we now have uncertainty about who's running and who can run in all of the major races for 2018 in congressional, um, in legislative districts where we're still waiting uh, for final maps to come out, and uh, in the judicial uh, elections, which we don't even know if they'll necessarily happen. Yeah, so, so. you've got the redistricting slash um, judicial appointment discussion. That's uh, still ongoing, really no indication given yet as to which direction, if any direction at all, uh, the Joint Committee is going. They held their first meeting last week and just kind of went over the, op- the, the possibilities and rehashed some of the same debates that they've had before. They'll meet again this Friday, uh, pending all the, the weather possibilities this week, um, and it'll be interesting to see how quickly they move. They haven't given themselves any sort of deadlines for that. Uh, they're sort of taking the approach of uh, we'll, we'll hold these meetings as long as it takes to uh, come up with our recommendations. So um, that's an issue that, you know, we've already taken out all the judicial primaries, so they have a little bit more time there. Um, I think the filing period has been pushed out till uh, I believe it's June, uh, when candidates in those races would need to file uh, either under the current maps for uh, district court, superior court judges, uh, or under some redrawn maps, um, and possibly not at all if there was a constitutional amendment approved to switch to a appointment system. Uh, so that's kind of where that stands. So again, if you want to run for judge, you're looking at some confusion. We're still waiting on a final ruling on legislative districts uh, as to whether the special master's plan for that will be approved or whether the initial uh, districts drawn by the legislature back in August will be what we uh, have the election under this year. And then, of course, the congressional stuff is now um, in uh, confu- state of confusion. So I guess if you want certainty in running for office, you better be running for like county commissioner or something or soil and water board or, or something to that effect where the, the lines are not likely to change. Okay. Uh, well, speaking of uh, obscure jobs, uh, the appointments to the Utilities Commission and the Agriculture Board are about the only thing that happened uh, uh, in the legislative session uh, that's taken so far. I guess we should say the legislative session is uh, is still ongoing, but nothing seems to be going on so far. Um, so uh, before we get into um, the environmental um, bill that did get considered, um, what what did they actually do? Um, they appointed some people, but uh, did did they appoint uh, all of the uh, people that Cooper wanted them to appoint? Yeah, so this is the, for the backstory on this is Cooper, uh, as with any governor, has to fill openings on various state boards, and some of them he can just appoint on his own without any sort of uh, approval for it, and some of the bigger, more important ones, he has to get uh, the legislature to confirm his appointments. Um, and so they have uh, been sort of notoriously slow about it uh, since Cooper became governor. He uh, reached out to them back in October and criticized them for not taking action on some appointments that dated back to April or May, um, saying basically this is impeding the uh, my ability to do my job as governor and appointing these people and these people's ability to uh, do the work that these boards do. Uh, and the legislature's response was, well, we're still 
vetting these people. We've got to meet with them, figure out if they're good for the job, that sort of thing. Uh, so they come back here in January, and uh, out of, I think, 13 total that Cooper has pending, some of them are only a month or two old. A lot of them are uh, dating back to the spring or summer. Uh, the Senate decided to take action on three of them, two to the Utilities Commission, one of which was a reappointment, a woman who served on there for probably like a decade, and then uh, one new person to fill a, an empty seat, uh, and then one uh, appointee to the State Board of Agriculture representing the uh, forestry and timber industry. Uh, and those sailed through without any controversy. They think they had unanimous votes and uh, not a whole lot of concern about those folks. And uh, when I asked, uh, legislators said they're still looking at the other 10 people and um, will be vetting those before they come back for a vote. So no idea exactly when they're going to happen. But that is the only thing that actually passed both chambers. So uh, the one-day session last week, uh, I put it in my column this week, I think was kind of a failure in that you know, we spent $40,000 or whatever it takes to bring the legislators all back to Raleigh to really not do a whole lot, because, um, of course, the original plan with the session was to do judicial redistricting, and now we don't know if or when that's going to happen, but it doesn't seem like it's going to happen in the next couple of weeks. How does it work when they're uh, in session, but they're not, they don't have any pressing business? Are they down here twiddling their thumbs or um, collecting their per diem well, checks? Or so some of them were slated to be down here. We were supposed to have a good amount of meetings this week, but unfortunately because of the weather, uh, there are no meetings until Friday, uh, which is when the joint uh, the joint select committee on judicial reform and redistricting meet, is meeting. Um, so some of them were down here, and I think they get a little bit of money for the meetings, and it's not, I think, I don't think it's a full per diem. I'd have to look into that, so don't quote me on that one. Um, but so some of them were down here and they are holding uh, skeleton sessions, which is just when they have, you know, maybe three or four uh, members from each party. And it's usually the representatives from Wake or the senators from Wake who are just kind of in there to make sure, you know, they can gavel in and gavel out. So like this morning, the House was in um, Representative David Lewis from Harnett County. Uh, he was presiding. Um, and then I know Chris Malone was there doing other stuff. I don't know who from the Democrats was there because I wasn't in the actual chamber. But you'll see something similar today, Tuesday, uh, when the Senate comes in at 4. Um, so they are planning on staying in session until Friday. But again, those are just going to be skeleton sessions. I haven't seen an adjournment resolution yet. So we don't even know when we might come back. This could be our last session until you know, whenever the traditional short session starts in, like, May. In May yeah. um, so I think the big thing is we'll be looking for the adjournment resolution in the next couple of days just to see what, if anything, could happen between now and May. So. And I guess snow is going to possibly keep them away for the next few days anyway because we've yeah. had some meetings canceled. Yeah. Uh, and uh, like you said, nothing until Friday. So. Mm -hmm. yep. oh, so if you were planning on going to any legislative meetings this week, sorry, you're a little bit let down, but show up on Friday for judicial redistricting i'm sure it'll be a blast <laughs> uh so will they did pass in the house uh a bill on the gen x pollution uh the senate though left town and didn't take it up um so what exactly did the bill do it was a little surprising um what it did and didn't do yeah we had this bill that's been percolating for it was probably a week to 10 days before the session um that they were getting together to give uh DEQ and some other state agencies, all of these uh, kind of new tasks that the legislature wanted, new studies on, you know, how effective our permitting process is as a state for, you know, fighting pollution, um, what types of pollution might be flowing into North Carolina from other states that border us, things like that. And then at the last second, they decided to also 
throw in a little bit of money uh, that Cooper and some Democratic legislators and some environmental activists had been asking for um, to try and fight pollution, uh, namely the Gen X issue that's uh, been all over the news, especially in southeastern North Carolina. Um, for people who might not be listening, just the quick recap is Gen X is this uh, chemical uh, that is used in Teflon and some other industrial applications like that. It was made at a plant down in the Fayetteville area. It's very closely related to a uh, different chemical that has been linked to some really serious health issues, cancers, birth defects, things like that. Um, led to a huge multi-million dollar legal settlement earlier this year. Um, Gen X was uh, that company, which is uh, DuPont and Chemours. Gen X was that company's uh, replacement for that much more dangerous one. Um, and people are worried that Gen X might have some or even many of the same negative qualities as this other chemical, um, including, as I wrote about, the former mayor of Wilmington, who says that he thinks people should not be drinking the water in Wilmington due to all of the uh, water pollution down there. So, anyways, the legislature was in, like I said, they ordered all of these studies into pollution, some aimed specifically at Gen X, some kind of broader focused, um, and also threw in uh, some money uh, to let uh, DEQ... Um, one, buy this piece of equipment that's called a mass spectrometer, uh, which is what uh, what you need to have to, in order to find these types of chemicals in the waterways. Uh, this whole Gen X thing, uh, everyone believes that it's actually been in the water for years, but we're just kind of now finding out about it, and it just kind of happened by happenstance. So the state wants to figure out, hey, what else is in the water? You know, what other sorts of potentially dangerous chemicals are out there? Um, and so this bill would have provided around half a million dollars to buy one of those. It would have provided, uh, I, I think it was around another half a million dollars to hire a team of scientists who would be in charge of, uh, you know, using that equipment and, you know, putting it to use. Obviously, you can't just have that piece of equipment. You have to have, you know, specially trained people to use it. Um, and then would have also thrown in some uh, extra money for DEQ to kind of go through the backlog of environmental permits, things like that. You know, very dry stuff, but stuff that, uh, you know, this, the state government has been saying is necessary to tackle this. Kind of a big deal, though, because in the past they've resisted giving money to DEQ. They've given some money to some other agencies, but um, Republicans in the legislature have seemed to say DEQ already has enough staff. Right. Well, it's not just that they've resisted giving DEQ money. DEQ's budget has been slashed by millions of dollars in the last decade. Um, And, you know, that started under Democrats, continued under Republicans. Um, A lot of it kind of started with the recession, but even after, you know, economic fortunes picked back up in the last few years and the budget has rebounded, uh, DEQ's budget specifically has not. Um, and so, yeah, they're facing all of these staffing cuts, funding cuts um, from both the state and the federal government. They've been begging for more money for months um, related to all of this genetic stuff. Cooper, um, in the fall, vetoed a different environmental bill that uh, – provided some money to hit on this Gen X issue, uh, specifically because the money that it did provide didn't go to DEQ. It went to UNC Wilmington and the local uh, you know, public drinking water utility down in the Wilmington area to try and study. And he said, no, that's a misuse of funds. We need to be sending this to the state instead. And, you know, obviously there's, you know, a little bit of a, you know, a power dy- dynamic there as well, since DEQ is under Cooper's control. Um, he wants, you know, to get the money, uh, you know, because, you know, 
the department's under his control. His secretary, Michael Regan, is running it. Um, Republicans are maybe a little bit hesitant to give them the money, uh, one, because they have been kind of using DEQ as a punching bag um, during this whole thing, and I, some might say that is quite well-deserved. Some might say that's unfair. I don't know. Um, but, you know, there, there's been a lot of talk about how, you know, well, DEQ missed this for years, even before their big budget cuts of a decade ago, they were missing pollution. Why should we think that throwing more money at them now is going to, you know, make things any better? So uh, that was kind of the the argument you heard on the Republican side of things for a long time until last week when they were here in the House and they shot this money through unanimously. This this bill went through in just a couple hours. It passed a committee unanimously. It went through and passed the House floor unanimously. There was some debate, you know, obviously, you know, the Democrats and Republicans didn't agree on everything, but in the end it passed unanimously. But it didn't matter because before they were able to pass it, the Senate left town. Um, and I know uh, Colin was trying to get reactions from senators, uh, you know, that day. And uh, I mean, everyone was. And uh, you know, all they were saying is, well, you know, we can't really comment since we haven't seen the bill. That was a little silly because, I mean, it's I on had the seen the bill. <laughs> yeah, it's on the internet. It's out there. I mean, I had seen the bill. I'm just a lowly little reporter. Surely yeah. if a lawmaker and, and wanted to see it. some of their attitudes are sort of, <laughs> we know the bill could change on the House side, so we don't really want to commit until we see the final version. But in this case, I mean, the broad points of it were there. I mean, did you support the funding for DEQ or not? Were the studies the things that needed to happen or were they not? And um, obviously it didn't take Berger very long after the session ended to send out that pretty scathing comment uh, about two hours after they adjourned. Yeah, we were all trying to figure out, you know, why the Senate, you know, uh, I don't know, ran isn't the right word, but, you know, you know, they could have stayed around for an extra two or three hours longer than they did and held a vote on this if they wanted to, but they were gone. And so a lot of people, a lot of the members of the House of Representatives were pretty angry about it. You know, hey, you know, they, they felt a little bit like they had spent their whole day doing this and having all these, you know, debates, obviously, that go into figuring out how you're yeah, going to vote. Yeah, and then you had the comments from uh, State Rep. Deb Butler, the Democrat from down in Wilmington, who was basically saying she thought that uh, the House leadership and the Senate leadership had somehow conspired to passed this bill knowing it wasn't going to go anywhere and it wasn't actually going to take effect. Uh, that claim, I think, the uh, uh, strongly denounced by House Speaker Tim Morris, uh, spokesman, is, is inaccurate, but certainly a lot of uh, distrust around this issue. And I do have to wonder just procedurally, this is me being a, the, the policy dork that I am, uh, that they put in this Gen X bill in a bill that hadn't passed either chamber first, which usually when they bring up sort of a last minute bill or a special session bill, uh, they'll put it the language into a bill that's already fairly far along in the process, which allows it to move through a little bit more fast and more smooth. Um, so if they had done it that way and basically taken a Senate bill uh, that had uh, already passed the Senate, stripped it out, put the Gen X language in, the Senate would have had to take an immediate vote uh, up or down on the House's new version of it, uh, whether they want, wanted to pass it as it was or send it to a conference committee and work out the differences that way. Uh, whereas if the Senate gets a House bill that hasn't been in the Senate before, uh, they can just send it to the Rules Committee uh, and not touch it ever if they want to. Uh, and that's sort of what happened in this case. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know procedurally. And, you know, I, I heard kind of the opposite side. I heard from uh, Representative Ted Davis, the Republican from Wilmington, who's kind of been leading this whole thing on the House side. You know, he said that, you know, the fact that they were able to you know, create a whole brand new bill without having gone through all the hoops and, you know, passing the deadlines last year and everything, you know, he said that they had gotten special dispensation from the Speaker's office to do that, and that kind of showed, 
you know, how committed House leadership was to, you know, supporting, you know, the fight against Gen X. So, you know, I guess it can get spun either way. Um, so, so when Senator Phil Ber- Senate leader Phil Berger weighed in on this, he said basically, well, we're still waiting to get a bunch of data back, uh, and it's premature to do this. And he also said uh, that they might even have this equipment available. Um, so uh, what was he talking about? Yeah, there have been uh, rumors, I guess. Uh, people have been saying that maybe one of the UNC system schools already has this mass spectrometer, the thing that they were spending, you know, half a million dollars to buy. I'm not sure if that's true. Um, If it is, I have to imagine it's being used. You know, it's probably at one of our research universities, like NC State, um, and is, you know, probably a bunch of PhD students at whatever school it's at would not like to, uh, you know, give it up to DEQ. And I don't think DEQ can just kind of march into a university and start taking equipment. Um, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah, if that I think works maybe that that'll way. be my goal this week without there being any uh, committee meetings to see if I can track down this piece of equipment, find out who's using it, whether they're willing to offer up a loan or whether they <laughs> think it's pretty important and they want to keep it. <laughs> exactly. And um, yeah, he um, yeah, he said that was one reason why he didn't want to uh, support the bill in the Senate. Um, he also said that uh, one, one another one of his criticisms of the bill was that uh, uh, Berger said that it didn't do anything to stop Gen X from being discharged, which is kind of a moot point because DEQ already took care of that in November. They revoked Gen X's yeah. permits for discharging that. So I wasn't really sure why that. Yeah, and he was also saying that it didn't do anything to make uh, – it left the ta- – I think it was the taxpayers holding the bag because uh, uh, Moore's the, the company that uh, discharged the Gen X, wasn't being held accountable to pay for stuff. But I don't know what – legally the senate or really anybody in government can do to make this company uh cough up some money for all of this um without taking them to court or something like that yeah i I would imagine you would absolutely have to take them to court i know that you know deq um can pursue a civil fine against uh chemors but that's capped at i think seventy five thousand dollars which you know pays for one of the five scientists that they need to run the equipment and doesn't pay for any of the equipment or anything. So, you know, the state's kind of got their hands tied on that. And yeah, Colin, you're right. I I haven't heard any suggestions from the legislature on, you know, ways to to hold Chemours and DuPont more financially responsible for all of this. So if that's something that people are interested in, um, maybe we'll start seeing some plans or details trickle out in the future. But so far, uh, all quiet on that front. If you have a mass spectrometer that's just sitting around, you can let us know, and yeah. we can get a we can pass high the resolution word along. mass spectrometer. Yeah. Uh, but DQ would also <laughs> like your help operating it because apparently they needed some yeah. staff to do that and, <laughs> and provide the paperwork. I mean, they don't want something some mass spectrometer that just fell off the back of a truck, you know. So, yeah. um, well, I don't know at this point. You know, beggars can't be choosers. <laughs> Uh, anything else? I mean, there was, uh, we pretty much knew going in that they wouldn't do anything immediately about judicial changes. We knew going in they wouldn't do anything about class size, although there's still people clamoring um, for some kind of a fix on Yeah, class and I think size. it's sort of been left open-ended. When we talked to Senate Leader Phil Berger during the one-day session about class size, he said, look, they, you know, people in, in his side are, are working on it, so I think it's a matter of coming up with a agreement with the House, some sort of compromise on that issue, but it sounds like that's not going to happen uh, until at least the short session come May. Okay. 
Unless any of you guys have anything else that was notable from session, uh, we'll stop it there and we'll uh, come right back with Headliner of the Week. Stay with us. Hi, I found a toy dinosaur over on the playground by Smith Street. Uh, it had this phone number on it and, well, I just wanted to make sure the dinosaur made it back to its little owner. When I found the little sippy cup, I just had to give you a call. It's for a kid, you know? I know my son gets super attached to the smallest things, even a fire truck, and I'd be happy to drop it off. We'd do anything for kids, yet one in six children in the U.S. struggle with hunger. Help end childhood hunger near you. Learn how at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Domecast, and now it's time for Headliner of the Week. Will Doran, who's your headliner? I'll go for Anthony Kennedy, the Supreme Court Justice, um, who I think everyone uh, knows as the kind of, I guess, uh, typical swing vote on close cases. Whenever something is a 5-4 decision, he's usually the one that, uh, you know, surprised people and, you know, was kind of the, I mean, obviously all the votes count the same, but he's often seen as the swing vote. Um, in the partisan uh, gerrymandering case we had, the court ruling, if you read it, was very not so subtly aimed at getting his vote. Um, so I, you could kind of tell that, uh, you know, whichever one of the, the lower court judges was that wrote it felt pretty strongly about the ruling and wanted the Supreme Court to uphold it. And it, if you read through it, it cites Kennedy's opinions in like five or six or even more different occasions. It's like... You know, oh, the the great legal mind of Anthony Kennedy said all of these things to uh, to back up how we're ruling today. So, you know, I I, I don't know. I've never been a judge, uh, but you know, kind of backing him into this corner. You know, if he's gonna vote to overturn this ruling, he'd have to vote to uh, to call his own opinions wrong, <laughs> or at least uh, say that they were misinterpreted. Um, but it, it was a really fascinating ruling in general uh, for people who are interested in that sort of thing and haven't read it. I'd suggest it. There was one. One issue that uh, it pointed out that I thought was fascinating that, uh, you know, some academic person said that there are 25,000 different ways that the state could have drawn our 13 congressional districts. And uh, in fewer than 1% of those iterations, would you have gotten the 10 to 3 Republican split uh, that we have now, um, which I, I think says that the Republicans definitely got their money's worth when they hired Tom Hoffler to draw those lines and get that 10 to 3 split since more than 99% of the time you're getting something with more Democrats in office. Um, uh, but yeah, that, that was just one of many little tidbits in there. But I, I thought the Anthony Kennedy thing was pretty funny um, and also could be, you know, uh, a sign that uh, they think they actually have a shot at the Supreme Court um, and that, you know, it would be important to get him on on board. So okay. there you go. And uh, I was just trying to f- remind myself, but I believe Kennedy ruled uh, with the conservatives the last time around on uh, gerrymandering in North Carolina. Of course, this is a different issue um, that was racial, relating to racial gerrymandering. Um, but uh, it was actually Clarence Thomas who voted with the liberals last time around. Um, and he had said that there should just never be any use of race at all. Um, in drawing these districts. Um, but since this is sort of an uncharted territory for the Supreme Court, um, we don't really know how they'll all come down, um, although um, we might find out in this Wisconsin case before the North Carolina one actually gets up there. It'll be interesting. Um, the Supreme Court's always just punted on this issue in the past and never decided to make a ruling one way or another. So, yeah, who knows? 
All right. Uh, Associate Justice Anthony Kennedy in the hat for headliner of the week. Uh, Colin Campbell, who's your headliner? Well, I'm going with uh, Congressman Robert Pittenger uh, for uh, his actions this week, or I guess last week, uh, in full support of uh, President Donald Trump. Uh, of course, uh, President Trump was under fire last week for uh, some comments he made in a, a private meeting with some other uh, members of Congress on uh, immigration in which he referred to uh, certain countries as, uh, can we say this word on Domecast? I guess it's been in the paper and the NPR is saying it now, so. If it can go in the print edition of the NNO, I think yeah. we can say it. Well, yeah, it and if it's good enough for, yeah. you know, Corva Coleman on NPR, it's good enough for me. So we'll, we'll, we'll say it, and we should put the warning out there to sensitive ears, cover yeah. your ears. He said that they were shithole countries. Uh, but anyway, so Robert Pittenger is one of the few who has been supportive of Trump. Uh, we put out a call, I think, to uh, both the North Carolina senators, Tom Tillis and uh, Richard Burr, uh, for their reaction to his statements. I think none of them got back to our reporter. Um, other members of uh, North Carolina's congressional de- delegation who are Republicans uh, hadn't really said much publicly, but uh, Pittenger, uh, more than happy to uh, be the, the president's wingman on this issue. Um, and he said in an interview with uh, WSOC-TV down in Charlotte, quote, I think he's a realist. I think he has an unconventional way of communicating. As I said, he's a diamond with a number of rough edges. Uh, Pittenger trolled Channel 9 according to the story that he recognizes that people are upset uh, but doesn't think the president was attacking the immigrants. Quote, you have to look at the context. Was he talking about people or was he talking about governments? I think he's looking at these countries ruled by despots. So that's Pittenger uh, on the record, uh, very much in support of, uh, of what the president said, although I guess not repeating the president's choice of words uh, on this topic, uh, but for uh, for being the one to uh, come straight out and uh, back the president instead of sort of dodging questions about the issue and uh, the word choice, uh, Pittenger is my pick this week. Okay. And there has been some, I guess, uh, some dispute about which word starting with S-H-I-T uh, the yeah, president was actually Yeah, some people thought using. it might be house on the end, which I've I've never heard it said that yeah, way. that's but, a new one to me. But I should note that sometimes with Trump, you hear him say things, and his words may sound like one word to one group of people and one word to another. I remember when he first came uh, to Raleigh a couple of weeks before he announced his bid, um, I wrote a story about his speech, and during his speech, he uh, used some derogatory language towards Marco Rubio and Jeb Bush. I heard it as he was saying they made assholes of themselves. Um, but when I went back and reviewed the tape and slowed it down and sort of parsed it, it said he was saying asses of as opposed to asshole of. Um, so, again, with Trump, sometimes you just don't know for sure which expletive he's going for. This will this will feature prominently in future classes on presidential rhetoric. And <laughs> um, uh, Lauren Horsch, who's your headliner of the week? So my headliner isn't really a who but a what. Um, and it is the possum drop, which is no more. So um, I think some of our listeners and, you know, faithful NNO readers remember the possum drop had, like, litigation against it in 2015 by PETA. Um, and it just happens in, you might have to correct me, Brastown? Brastown, North Carolina, where every New Year they put a live possum in a cage and slowly kind of, you know, just bring it down, kind of like the ball in New York City. Um, so the guy who started that said that he would do it for about, 25 years I do believe and this year would have been 24 and uh, it is no more he said this was the last year Um, and Colin wrote a pretty fun column about you know weird New Year's Eve traditions but also about possums Um, so we were sitting in the insider offices one day and uh, we learned about how Governor Bob Scott once ate a possum or didn't I should say he ate a possum once but he also tried to eat a possum that won a beauty contest 
at the Holleran days, and I forget, somewhere in Harnack County. Slowpoke the possum. Yeah, Slowpoke, I think, right? Yeah, it was yeah. in Dunn. Spivey's Corner. Yeah, okay, oh, Spivey's Corner. Uh, the Holleran contest, they also had a um, possum beauty contest where Slowpoke the possum won this, you know, this beauty contest. They found Slowpoke, you know, running across a highway and snatched him up. And and it was just possums versus possums, right? It wasn't yes. possums versus they had people? A, they had a separate beauty contest for Miss Possum. Um, I, I did look up the correct name of that. Um, and <laughs> so, so not the Possum Queen. It was not the Possum Queen. I come from the land of weird princess names. Uh, Minnesota has Princess K of the Milky Way, which is our dairy princess. Um, but no, it is Miss Possum. <laughs> Um, so there's just it was just a fun story to read about how Governor Bob Scott liked his possum prepared, and then um, NCpedia is a really good resource for this online, and it had not necessarily the full recipe, but they talked about how eventually once they set Slowpoke free, they got a different possum, which they then made into possum stew. So it's a lot of things there. <laughs> yeah, well, Colin had his uh, excellent possum column, and and there were dueling possum columns this week because Rob Christensen also uh, wrote a a column that uh, bemoaned the uh, the uh, loss of possum as a uh, basically a, a a piece of southern rural culture that has has uh, faded as a as a meal. Yeah, and I noted in my column that, um, you know, we still have a couple quirky New Year's celebrations, and I really hope that for the sake of keeping North Carolina's culture strong, uh, they stay going strong, and that's the uh, pickle drop in Mount Olive, of course, home to Mount Olive Pickles, uh, and the flea drop in Eastover, which is a town outside of Fayetteville that used to be known as Flea Hill, Uh, so they have a big, uh, I think, 30-pound ceramic flea that's lowered from the sky on uh, New Year's Eve, and then I discovered I was remiss in writing my column. I said that there were only two of these left with the possum drop. There's actually a third in Marion, North Carolina, that a, a, a nice gentleman from the Rotary Club there wrote to me and told me about uh, that they have a uh, gold nugget drop. And the gold nugget, I guess symbolizing the uh, town's mining history, drops down into a giant actual donut uh, made by the local donut shop uh, into the center of the donut. And then as, after it's dropped, uh, the crowd descends on the donut and all eats it. Um, so it sounds like a nugget and all. Yeah, I don't know if the nugget's edible. I need to double check, but the donut's definitely edible and it is massive. So I guess it can feed the well, whole does, crowd of revelers. Does whoever finds the nugget get to keep it? Does it go back into? I the, think after they're the through with it, no one else no, is going to want to keep it. This yeah. nugget drops down, so you're everyone's going to see it. You don't just find it. So it's not like a pickle ornament in the middle of your Christmas tree. And if no one knows about that, text me or tweet me later, and I'll tell you about it. Um, but yeah, it's just you just drop it down. Hmm. And of course, here in Raleigh, we have the acorn. Yeah, drop. so yeah, I mean, I don't know if you'd up our weird game in Raleigh mm. to uh, compete with uh, Marion and Eastover and Mount Olive. Um, well, maybe Brasstown can return to his roots as the moonshine capital of the South, uh, as uh, uh, Rob's <laughs> column said it used to be known. Um, but uh, I have a feeling that somebody is going to try to restart this possum tradition. I have a feeling that its status as the moonshine capital was closely tied to its status as the possum drop location <laughs> yeah. as well. Yeah, well, as I found out in my column researching it, uh, this sort of all stems from around, I think, 1992, when a, a guy who was considered to be the unofficial mayor of Brasstown, inspired by the candidacy of Ross Perot, decided to uh, run for president as the possum party uh, ticket, promising a possum in every pot. Um, and I think that sort of cemented uh, the, the town's legacy as the, the possum place. But you had to assume that all of this was probably influenced by moonshine on some level. <laughs> well, I knew that I knew that people ate possum, but I didn't really know there was such a you know a, a historic place for it in this uh, in North Carolina culture. Apparently, 
Um, governor Carr Scott, uh, who was the governor in the early 50s, um, if you wanted him to name you a country squire, um, which you get a frameable certificate. Um, you have to uh, you have to say that you like to eat possum. That's part of the uh, part of this the the ceremony. Um, there's this whole long thing that you have to attest to, uh, including enjoying chitlins, possum, and taters, lamb fries, pot liquor, corn pone, sassafras tea. Um, so, and then he would he would throw a black tie possum dinner. Um, so yeah. Governor Bob Scott's possum dinner was black tie. So. Yes, I guess that was actually that was Bob Scott, the the younger that uh, uh, was also governor who threw the black tie possum dinner. So, uh, anyway, interesting history of uh, of possum in North Carolina. Um, but I'm going to award the headliner to Anthony Kennedy uh, because uh, we're going to be uh, potentially seeing big news coming from the Supreme Court. So as much as uh, I enjoyed learning about Slowpoke the Possum. Um, we will have, we will, Will is our winner, uh, and uh, Anthony Kennedy will go down in the uh, in the headliner of the week. Well, maybe there will be a future um, uh, lawsuit over the Possum drop that makes it all the way to the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. and uh, we can, can combine provide the, two. the deciding yeah. vote on whether. <laughs> Anthony Kennedy can vote on it. Uh, if there's some profanity used, Robert Pittenger can defend it. <laughs> 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 all right. Well, I think we've milked that for all it's worth. Um, for Lauren Horsch, Colin Campbell, and Will Doran, I'm Jordan Schrader. Please catch us next time on Domecast. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.